You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 5th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, friends. Hi. 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 So, guys, this is a bit of a hybrid episode, right? It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. <laughs> we're we're going to record our, some of our, the, the usual segments live, like we are, I mean, recorded in the studio like we do every week. But a big the, instead of the news section and the interview, we're going to use uh, a show that we did at the Smithsonian last Friday. So that'll be like in the middle of the show will be the, that live show that we recorded. Neat. Um, yeah, but it'll be bookended by studio recordings to, to yeah, flesh so when, out the when you hear show. sort of that when you hear sort of that change in the sound and the audio, you're not hallucinating. Yes. It's that's right. There, there will be <laughs> actually together. two changes in the audio quality because a, a brief segment of the live show we actually had to use our backup recording because we had to switch cards because we ran out of memory. Now, uh, isn't it good though that I take a backup recording? Yeah, but you didn't take a good yes. backup recording. <laughs> <laughs> but still, but still, it's not a lost episode. Uh, but yeah, but was, we have more than enough content for the for the show this week. And this is also this is a special episode for another reason. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what? what? Yeah, no. <gasps> I do. Oh, oh, I do. oh, is it 700? I know. Is it no. episode 700? 700. The odometer is Holy turned. Yes. We're now in the 700 club. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. So, Steve, we're done now, right? We're done? No, what? but done. Bob, we're just getting started over here. Oh, <laughs> I'm just getting warmed up. On top of that, oh, we, we hit a bestsellers list. We did. We, we, we found out a couple we days did. ago that we were on the USA Today national bestseller list for the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book. So we are officially national bestselling authors. Yeah. Can we put stickers on our book now? Yes. we. Yeah. In fact, we did, they're going to do that. The publishers are going to put national nice. bestseller on our book. Yep. Wow. That's nice. Yeah. The reception's been great. People have been... Sending us pictures of the stack of books that they've been purchasing for oh, Christmas God. gifts. It's been it's been really really warm, you know, heartwarming to see. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's been a lot of work, and so being well received by our community, by our peers, is uh, is very nice. And a lot of people ask us, "Hey, how can I get a signed copy of the book?" Well, mm-hmm. we actually took it upon ourselves to uh, make available a limited supply of books that will be signed by all five of us. Ooh. If you want to purchase a signed copy of the book online, you can do that directly from us. And Jay, tell them how they do that. All you have to do is go to theskepticsguy.org forward slash SGU holiday 2018. All one word. We have a page up there that explains to you the different things that you can do. Now, by the time you hear this show, you should definitely see – more than one option. Right now, though, we have one option, and that is the option to buy someone the signed, personalized copy of the book. And personalized meaning that you could tell us what you'd like us to write in the book to that person, or you know, talk about this, talk about that, riff about this, or you know, you could even give us like you know the paragraph that you'd like us yeah. to write in there. Yeah, I'd go with a few words, not too much space. On top of that, <laughs> you are also going to be able to give them a gift membership to our Patreon. Um, you get to decide at what level and for how long, and I will send you a reminder email to to transfer the account to them when once that time is up. And that's definitely a part of the uh, information that you fill out. And the fun thing is, is that 
it's a, the Christmas card is actually a Mad Lib. And if you don't know what a Mad Lib is, it's a sentence that's not completed and you get to fill in the blanks, right? So the sentence actually starts off like this. You are the fortunate recipient of an SGU Patreon membership at the blank level and, and the number mm. of months. Kernan Coleman, who is our designer and marketer, um, has created this amazing holiday card that is the Mad Lib. So the Mad Lib and the holiday card are the same thing. Now, when you do this, I'm going to send you a box that has the book in it and the card. And the beautiful thing is this. All you have to do is just wrap it. You just wrap the box, write the person's name on the, the wrapping paper, and give it to them, and the Christmas present is complete. Or you can so even just a, put it into a gift bag. Yeah, that's true. If you think that <laughs> there's a skeptic in the group. I'm a big group. fan of gift bags. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a big Whoever fan thought of receiving of that was them, brilliant. Steve? Of what? Are you a big fan of receiving them? Yeah, oh, sure. Isn't it more fun when something's wrapped, though? No. Uh, no, I love, I love, I love the gift bag stuff. Me too. Oh, gift bags gosh. are for, for the lazy, Steve. Yep. Exactly. I, I, <laughs> I've gotten some things wrapped and taped up so much, it took me like 12 minutes to open the day. Then you have thing. all that wrapping paper you got to throw out. This way, you have a gift bag. It's like a gift and a gift. Oh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and a so, bag. O- so open. To, Two to seconds. Continue. It's out. Before oh, I lose right, my right, train right. of thought here, I'm trying to remember where was I. Um, <laughs> so, but there's two other things that you could do on this page. That's the, that's the big one. I, I formally named that the mother load because you're giving them the book and a gift membership. The other two options are I'll give you a download. You could download this card and it, you could just give them a gift membership or you could just give them the book. If you're going to yeah. give someone the, the book, I'm going to send you the card. Right, So if you order just the book and you don't go for the book and the Patreon account, I'm still going to send you a card with the book. So no matter what, if you order a book for me, you're going to get a card and it's going to be filled out automatically. It will be automatically filled out. So just go to the webpage. It will tell you everything that you need to know. It's theskepticsguide.org, SGU Holiday 2018. It, it's Look, we're doing this because we wanted to give you guys the ability to buy signed copies, but it's, it's a lot of work. I'm not, you know, I'm just saying it's a lot of work. I'm going to, my, my skin cells will be all over the products that you buy. Um, Jay sitting here talking mm. about all the work that he's done so far. Come on, man. Staying up till four in the morning in the DC hotel, unpacking boxes and signing oh, them. Oh, Karen, Woe is me. So we had, Woe is me. We bought a, a sizable number of books because we anticipate like, you know, how many, how many sales do you think we're going to have? We have no idea. So I just wanted to make Three sure. Three or four at least. It, it yeah. literally filled one of those, um, those like hotel yeah. trolleys. Yeah. Yeah. The luggage trolleys. Oh. Yeah. So I roll it into Kara's room. I could barely move it. Kara, remember I couldn't even push it? Yeah. <laughs> it so yeah. So we get, get into the Kara's room and then it dawns on her like, wait a second. It's late. I'm leaving tomorrow. I've got to sign all these books tonight. She stayed up till four in the morning signing oh books. And gosh. here's the thing. Was when it you, really four? It was yes. late. When you do these book signings at events, the people who work at the bookstore like take them out of the boxes for you and mark the page and they hand them to you. It's amazing. You feel like royalty. When you do it in your <laughs> hotel room in the middle of the night, you're like you're, opening you're boxes yourself, them. restacking yeah, yeah. them. You're slumming it. Pay- Get, yeah, getting paper it, man. cuts. Getting know. paper. I did. I got paper. I know. I got oh, a no. paper cut opening. Oh, that's a workman's comp. Kara <laughs> asked me to open the boxes for her, and I break out my pocket knife. I always have a pocket knife on Whoa. me, like a little multi tool. And I break it out. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm breaking the seals on the package. I'm like, I'm cool. I'm doing this for Kara. And I get a paper cut, and I'm like, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I want my mommy. <laughs> but no, it is really cool, you guys. It's such a cool idea for a gift. It might be the 
only chance unless you come to another event and we don't know when the next one we're all going to be together is at like on the calendar um you know it's tough they live uh, all the guys live in connecticut and they don't live in the same city i live out here in la so it's a lot for us to all be together and and make sure that we can fill out a book just for you with all of the signatures um it's a big deal but jay i have a question yeah. what if people you know a big portion of our listenership doesn't live in the u.s what if people want to get a book for the holidays but they live in australia or canada or, or the uk or you know south africa I'm only listing places where they speak English. I'm not sure why. Probably because the book's in English. Ian and I spent two hours just figuring out postage today. Um, (laughs) So to give you rough numbers, it's going to be about $80 to ship the book to the UK or other – probably it's similarly priced in other places in Europe. Whoa. And it's it's, check this out. It's going to be like $130 to ship it to Australia. Why? What? It's just crazy, crazy. Because, you, you know, we don't slow boat it. If you're going to get it for Christmas, I said, you know, I'd like these uh, to be delivered gosh. with a, with a day or two to spare for Christmas at the latest. You know, this is yeah. for, the, for people that are far away. You know, so I, I looked up the United States Postal Service, FedEx, DHL. I, I went all across the board and the, the cheapest was DHL. Wow. And it was like oh. over 100 bucks to send to Australia? Yeah. So it was like 79 to $80 to send to the UK. You know, you're getting a lot, though. You know, you're getting not just the signed book, but there's other stuff you're going to get. Like I, there's doodads, right? So I have, you know, <laughs> doodads. I have, yeah, there's stuff that I'm going to do to the book. Each book is going to have the SGU what? stamp, which right now only about <laughs> 20 people have the books actually stamped with the formal SGU stamp. That I've still ankle. never seen this stamp. I don't, don't think even, it actually and exists. And we're done talking about it. We're not talking about that <laughs> then we have First rule of stamp club. There will be stickers involved in this. Oh, stickers. And some some of the books might even have my blood on them if I keep... It probably. Yeah, keep, keep getting paper And, and, I, and don't, don't forget, Kara. Kara, don't forget... What? What? That anybody that, that does this promotion actually gets a – you are going to be one of the only people that get to see a video that we're going to make specifically for you guys. Ooh. For these holiday gift givers and gift buyers. You know people. why I forgot? Because this is the first time I'm hearing of this. Well, there you go. It's <laughs> pretty cool. And you know what? The truth of the matter is even if you live in Australia, it's still cheaper than flying your ass to the U.S. to see us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so – all right, guys, we have a couple of announcements before we move on with the uh, the live show that we did on Friday. Save the date. This is your first Ooh. save the date for Nexus 2019. It will be <laughs> July 12th to 14th. Yeah. <laughs> July 12th to 14th weekend. Yeah. And it's going to be in New York City again at FIT. So save the date. Obviously, we don't have speakers and all that. That'll be We'll be scheduling that over the next few months, but we like to give the date out as soon as we can. And we have another say of the date. George, Rob, and the SGU are going to be putting on a special show in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on April 26th. April 26th. That's a Friday. We have no idea what the show is going to be. We have some idea. <laughs> but we haven't finalized what the show is actually going to be. It's going to be an extravaganza plus Plus a lot of Ooh. other cool shit. I like plus. We don't know what the plus is yet, though. Uh, we're talking about it, but it's still in the planning stages. But it's going to be a fun day of skepticism and science and coolness. Uh, so just put a save the date on that, too. April 26th, 2019. Uh, and any, whenever any other dates crop up, we'll let you know as soon as we can. But that's what we got on the schedule for now. There probably will be some new announcements coming very soon, though. I'm just going to mm. tease you with that. It's working maybe, on things. Maybe huh? in the next mm. week or two, yeah. 
Uh, mm. For talking about now late 2019, there might be some other trips in our future. Mm. We'll see. Um, so <laughs> one of the news items we're going to talk about in the pre-recorded part of the show was about the Chinese researcher who gene edited those babies. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So a couple yeah, of uh, – uh, there's actually been updates since we did the show. So, when I, so one was that I completely pronounced his name wrong. It's not really an update. <laughs> I, his first name is H-E, which I pronounced he, he. like, you know, an American. Is it he? Hey. But it's it's huh. Huh. Apparently, yeah, gotcha. like, huh. Uh, and then what? while I'm at it, I also completely mispronounced <laughs> Roll with it, Jay. Schleiman's name. It's uh, I said Schleiman. Is it Schleiman? It's actually Schle- Schleiman. It's Schleiman. Schleiman. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we got a pretty pointed email about that we got mispronunciation. Like, we got like seven pointed emails. If only, if only there was somebody on the show who spoke German who could pr- correct my pronunciation in real time. Yeah, right, Evan? <laughs> Looking at me. Yeah, okay. I'm supposed to. Yes. You're right, Steve. Yes. Yes. I'll take the blame for that. That's good. Fine. All right. I'm a human blame shield. dutifully assigned. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go on with our, our live show from the Smithsonian, and then we will be back after all that is over with Who's That Noisy and Science or Fiction. So thank you all for, for coming tonight. Uh, it's really exciting to be speaking at the Smithsonian. We've had a very interesting day today in Washington. We started out with a, a tour of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Which we're going to be talking about, not tonight, we'll be talking about that in a future episode. We can't talk any more about this. Yeah, we can't. Next topic. Um, That was really very, very interesting, part of their outreach program. And then we had a great tour of uh, the behind the scenes at the National Museum of Natural History. We'll be talking about that tonight with a special guest. But I wanted to start talking first about the primary reason why we're here, our new book. We've been doing this for over 20 years, uh, talking about science communication, critical thinking, the relationship between those two things. How do we know what's real? Uh, how, you know, how to think about things in a, in a clear, logical, scientific way? Um, these questions, if anything, have gotten more urgent over the course of our career. I mean, 20 years ago, we were like, oh, yeah, you know, astrology, Bermuda Triangle, Bigfoot, that's all BS, you know. Those were our big topics. Now that all seems like, you know, quaint. <laughs> that was well, quaint. Yeah, like, <laughs> we've been, they're still out there, though. I know. Those are all still away. out there. Yeah, they never, they don't go away. And then it was good that we sort of cut our teeth on what we now consider to be sort of classic, you know, vintage skeptical topics. Uh, but then, you know, disruptive things happened like the internet, you know, the social media, uh, and fake news, right? You know, there's so many topics now that we deal with, the ones that are urgent, like people who think they shouldn't vaccinate their kids uh, or that uh, the world is not getting warmer, like global warming is a conspiracy. Um, Very, very interesting topics. That So we had to marshal all of our skills. Uh, At the same time, very interestingly, um, the research, mainly neuroscience, psychological research, looking at you know, why people believe things that are not true has really been advancing quite a bit. And so the classic books of critical thinking that were written in the 70s and 80s that sort of got us started in skepticism are still great texts, but they're out of date. I mean, there's been 20 years of really meaningful research since, you know, Carl Sagan wrote A Demon Haunted World, for example. 
Um, so that was part of the impetus for our book. You know, we've been sort of keeping up with all of this research. Like, what is the nature of conspiracy thinking? What drives it? You know, what kind of people believe in conspiracy? This is all stuff that we've learned in the last five or so years. Um, so part of also the impetus of the book is like, we were going to update ourselves and update the community and update everyone on all of the relevant research about memory, perception, conspiracy thinking, denialism, motivated reasoning, logical fallacies, cognitive biases, all the things that are necessary in order to arrive at some kind of reliable conclusions in a world that is increasingly complicated and also full of people who are trying to deceive you for one reason or another. I wanted to start as a jumping off point with a quote. Now, this is an excerpt from a rather long conversation that some of us have been having with somebody I won't name. There's just somebody that we know, but this is a, a Facebook comment exchange. But this is a real comment from a real person. And it, this was his response. Basically, he posted a link to an item about a global warming denial that it took Jay, I think you said it took you literally five seconds to debunk it. Yeah, that well, he was referencing something specific. Yeah, right. So I just went to Snopes. Yeah, you know, it's one of my, you know, you just start there in a lot of cases, and Snopes had a wonderful write up on it. And then, you know, I'm trying not to be snarky. You know, I know this person, I'm trying not to be snarky, and I just wrote back and I said, this literally took me two minutes to find on the internet. Right. You know, the, the subtext being, you did nothing to vet the information. And it was ob objectively wrong. It yeah. wasn't like opinion. So this is his response to Jay saying, um, this is actually not correct. And here is some objective information about why it's not correct. And he writes, uh, it is impossible for an individual to corroborate an item they see on Facebook or elsewhere. <laughs> okay. If the so-called news media can't do it, how can an individual... Also, that is exactly the way phony news is spread, because it favors the liberal press. They publish it, Trump's collusion, FBI being judge and jury for Clinton, even global warming, BS. So if they publish it, it must be true, right? And that is where we are at. The media has too much power, and because it represents only one side of the story, an individual must pass on all stories that show the other side, some of which have not been vetted. So, so wait, so then we started screaming <laughs> because, you know, to, to cut to the chase, what this person is essentially saying is they have to publish fake news mm -hmm. right? in order to have a, a strike some type of balance well, with the corrupt media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that this is, I just thought this was so emblematic of what we're up against. Forget about the, the, this particular conversation. What is he saying here? He's saying, well... We can't really know anything, can we? Uh, like, knowledge is not possible. <laughs> um, you can't, right? The, the media can't sort things out. They're just going along with their partisan bias. So we might as well go along with our partisan bias because nothing is real, right? There's no objectivity. You can't believe those experts, right? This is all part of a, of a broader cultural phenomenon where there is a systematic assault on the institutions of knowledge, on the institutions of media, of journalism, on expertise itself, the concept of expertise, not just experts, but expertise itself, the idea that some opinions are more sound or factually based or valid or internally consistent or whatever, 
than other opinions. Everything is opinion. It's all equal. So all we can really do is fight for our tribe. Yeah. That's what he's saying, mm -hmm. right? And what, was, what, what struck me, I think this is what everybody does, right? What, what struck me about this was just how explicit he was about it. I mean, he was actually showing some rare insight in, in, uh, for the exchange that we were having with him, you know, in coming right out and saying, yeah, I don't care if it's true or not. I don't vet it. If it supports my side, I have to, you know, spread it around to counteract all the BS on the other side. Oh, man. Right? Isn't that yeah. amazing? And that's it's exactly what he said, like that's, verbatim. That's what yeah. he, I'm not even paraphrasing yeah. very much. That's <laughs> it's right there. What's funny is that it doesn't matter what side you fall on politically or where you are on the spectrum because, you know, as skeptics, our goal here is to have a system to get to the closest version of the truth that we can and then iterate right. and try to make that even sharper as we go. And hopefully that's the biggest rudder that's steering what we think and believe. What, what also bothered me, now I don't think you have this problem, Steve, but when I read some of his sentiment in here, I could easily, if you just strip out anything that would point to what side of the fence he falls on politically, it kind of goes both ways. But I look at that and I look at people flaming out about Republicans and I look at people flaming out about liberals and I'm like, you are saying the same things. They don't even realize they're talking well, the same language. But more importantly, they're flaming out about vaccines, right? They're about scientific topics to which we have objective answers. It's yeah, not about like ideology. Global yeah, warming is the big one. specifically talks about climate change. Yeah, yeah. This is that, that the climate change is what this discussion was about, mm. right? The idea that he thinks that, you, well, you can't listen to those scientists, right? Because uh, it got it wrong in the 80s. Yeah. So how come predictions they made in the 80s, if they didn't go right, why should we believe their predictions that they're making today? Right. And he's citing predictions that they did not make in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, I know who this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just figuring that out. Now just now. Realizing, <laughs> way, right? You know, and then, like, you know, I'm know going through this now. process because I, I legitimately want to help shed some light for this person. I'm hoping that somehow I'm going to help them, which is probably super unlikely. But at the same time, I mean, basically all of this person's cards are on the table, right? Mm -hmm. They're saying sure, it doesn't yeah. matter if this has been vetted. I don't care if it's truth. Even if it's propaganda, I'll use it to my advantage because my narrative is more important at this right, point. Yeah. And that's the difficulty. So, so like the ends justify the means. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying, what he's saying. yeah. And well, our book is uh, designed to try to help people uh, avoid those kinds of pitfalls. Because yeah. It's not just global warming. I mean, it's just about every different kind of subject you can think of. Yeah. It's yeah, a yeah. pattern of thinking. Yeah. So here's the part where I have to say, you know, so I, I use this like a doctor will take medical students and drag them into a, a patient's room who has the end stage of some horrible disease. Say, like, oh my, you're never going to see this again in your career. This is like the most advanced, you know, disease of this version of this disease that you're going to see. That's a learning experience for the students. But the goal there is that they could recognize the disease when it's early on in its more subtle forms. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombas Socks. Now, you know, when Bombas sent us samples, you know, I'm like, all right, I'll put the socks on, you know, you know think about it. It's striking how good they are. That's it. The, that's all we wear that's, now. That's <laughs> I mean, really, it, right? really, they should make jackets and bed linens. Like I, I make it all out of the way they do their socks because I love it. Jay, better than that, I actually bought Bomba socks for a Christmas present for somebody. I've never Perfect. done that in a half a century. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> We're getting old. But look, if you care about your feet and you want to feel comfortable and you want to 
you know, have a, like have a little bounce to your step, you got to get these socks. These are definitely the most comfortable socks I've ever worn. They have a really good arch support. They're cushioned everywhere they need to be. They're stretchy where they need to be. They have good stay-up technology so they don't fall down around your ankles. I really love them. I'm wearing them right now. We want you to wear them right now. So go to bombus.com slash skeptics and use the code skeptics for 20% off of your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics. The code is skeptics and you'll get 20% off your first order. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Hi, this is Steve breaking in. As I said, we had a bit of an audio problem at this part of the show, so I'm just going to bridge to where we get the audio back again. Uh, we did an interview with Nick Pyanson, who is the curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institution and also author of the new book, Spying on Whales. Uh, we opened with a question about how do does he organize, how does a curator organize the millions of specimens that a museum like the Smithsonian has? Or, so that's the question about how do we organize museum collections? And also, does each of those count as an individual specimen? Yeah. Right, yeah. So um, sometimes we, um, the number, you know, the catalog, numbers are free. We can give whatever number we want. It's a way for us to organize it. And these days, we actually like to even barcode it so it's easy to find and accessible. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you might imagine how you could uh, organize a catalog of natural history objects. So it might be by geography. I want everything from Antarctica here, everything from South America here, everything from North America here. Or maybe by time. I want the Eocene, the Oligocene, the Miocene, the Pliocene, the Pleistocene. Uh, or it's by species, A through Z. Or species large through small. There are no rules. These are all human constructs about how we organize things. Um, in many cases, parts of our collections have legacies. So somebody collected a lot of something, and maybe we still haven't gone through it all. So that all stays together for, for you know, reasons of study. And that's important, right? I mean, I think sometimes we think about this whale, which you're going to talk about soon, yeah. is a one-of-a-kind. Right. But yeah. trilobites. Sure. You might have some on your shelves, and it seems like they're a dime a dozen, but it's important for a museum right. to have thousands of something sometimes, isn't right. it? For the kind of fossils I study, they're almost all one of a kind. Yeah. The fossil species for which we know uh, the evolution of whales, they're almost all hanging on single specimens. That's what we know about that species in its entirety. And uh, one of the funny things to me is that that's true for living whales, too. There's many species of living mammals on this planet for which our entire knowledge rests on a skull, one skull that was found on a beach in wow. a museum collection. So what we know about the world is actually very incomplete. I mean, I think there's this kind of like myth out there that everything is known. We have these shiny devices in our pockets that just we can Google anything. But that's not all that is known because a lot of what we know are in libraries or in people's heads or their oral histories. And then there's so much more we don't know. And that's why we do science. And that's why we publish on science every week, you know? Yeah. So, so what, I, sorry, what I love about these specimens, though, is the story that they tell, yeah. right? So go, right. going back yeah. to, like, to earlier part of my life, I was fascinated with whales since I, being a young child. But when I was even through college in the 80s, mm -hmm. um, we didn't have any specimens of transitional whales. And this yeah. was actually one of the examples that creationists would often bring up. They'd say, well, yeah, but, you know, whales are a kind, and there's no connection between them and other mammals. Um, 
which was not a great, you know, example. But, you know, back in 1980, we could say, well, evolutionary theory predicts that yeah. there, there needs to be transitional species between terrestrial mammals and aquatic mammals and, and cetaceans or whales specifically. Um, so we're probably going to find them eventually, right? And if, if we do, that would be a massive, even a stunning confirmation of evolutionary theory. And yeah, and at the time, creationists were happy to agree with that statement because there were no whale, you know, transitional species fossils. In the last 30 years, yeah. oh my God, and we found transitional whale species. I mean, yeah, there may be a lot of individual specimens, but collectively, we, you know, we're, you know, we, tell us what we found. So, um, you know, I think the story actually goes back all the way to Aristotle, yeah. who knew that whales were mammals. I mean, this is something that should be obvious if you watch any video of them underwater for a little bit. They come up to the surface to breathe air. And if you see them nursing their young, okay, another mammalian hallmark. And then if you've ever seen them cut or cut into pieces for meat, they're bleeding. They have blood. So Aristotle, who probably only looked at stranded whales and maybe some bones, and certainly probably saw living whales, in the Mediterranean, knew that whales were mammals. And then, you know, for the duration of time after that, it wasn't really clear how they were related. In the 19th century, I would say most, sci most scientists who looked at the problem knew that they were mammals and they were probably related to hoofed mammals. And that's from doing dissections on their body, looking at their guts, multi-chambered guts. Okay, what other mammals have that? Well, deer, cows. So um, the problem is, is whales don't look anything like the nearest things to which they're related to today. So if you think the fossil record is going to tell you something, what is it telling you that you otherwise don't know? And um, I think part of the problem for whales has been um, the effort that it takes to study them and to find the right rocks, to put in the hard work of going to a place where you think you might find them, spend years looking for them, and then knowing what the evidence looks like when, we, when you find it. So one of the things we looked at behind the scenes, I put that bone in your hands, that, that double-pulleyed ankle bone that um, we have a homolog of, but right. it's a classic hallmark trait of hoofing uh, mammals, even toed hoofed mammals. And it took until 2001 where scientists found that bone associated with the skeleton of an early whale to say, okay, Early whales really do fit into this part of the family tree. And at, around that time, we found all these other skeletons. And these skeletons, many of which are incomplete. So that's one of the things about the fossil record. We don't always get all these transitions, right? We actually are surprised to find them. It's not because we're not looking, but we just, maybe the rocks are not preserved. Maybe it wasn't the right conditions to preserve skeletons. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons. So, but what's made why whale evolution is textbook material is because we actually know about those transformations that tell us how whales went from living on land to becoming yeah. obligate full-time aquatic mammals. Yeah, big breaststroke, whales with legs, right? I mean, that's yeah. like, it doesn't get more transitional than that. But tell us about this specimen now that you yeah. recently described and what that tells us about the path that whales sure. took from terrestrial mammals to whales. So I think the big picture, in the context of what we just said, the big picture um, frame for thinking about this fossil, and so you're seeing the, this white area around the, the dark bone, that's a specimen cradle. It's made out of fiberglass and plaster. That's how it's stored in the museum collection. It's got a catalog number. Uh, we paint the catalog number on it. Um, 
to make sure it never gets dissociated from the fossil to which it belongs. And uh, if you were able to compare this to the skull of a living uh, whale, and these guys fall in the lineage to today's blue whales and gray whales and uh, right whales, the filter feeding whales. So that's one of the two groups, the filter feeders. And the other one are the, yeah, the baleen whales. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the baleen whales, filter yeah. feeding whales. Um, this fossil fits into that lineage, but it's really, really old. It's 33 million years old, which puts it not too long after the time when whales get right back to the water. So we actually reconstructed this animal's having very, very small hind limbs. If you look at the artistic reconstruction on the internet, what's important is this very old baleen whale didn't have teeth and it doesn't look like it had baleen. Right. So it wasn't filter feeding and it wasn't chomping down on its prey and cutting it to bits. So what was it doing? Well, we think it was suction feeding. And, uh, you know, suction feeding, it turns out if you're a mammal, that's something we all have done since the time we were born. Uh, it's a very basic way of feeding. You do it every time you drink something with a straw. Uh, it's creating a lowered negative pressure in your mouth, and the fluid goes in. But if you're an animal underwater, it's a way to pick off single prey items. And lots of marine mammals today do that. Walruses, many toothed whales. The filter feeding ones don't because they have a big mustachioed filter hanging from the roof of their mouth that lets them strain out prey. And we don't see evidence, the kind of evidence we see with today's whales in this skull and this part of the lower jaw. But if you look along the length of the jaw, there are, there are no teeth. There's no teeth on the upper jaw. And that's weird because all of its ancestors had teeth. So when, when you look at, when you're a paleontologist, you always want to know what ancestrally an organism had. What did, what did ancestors have? And if you see it or don't see it, that's really informative about the kinds of evolutionary changes that have happened. Um, you know, we talked about the ear bones, how the ear bones in this skull are acoustically isolated. And I think your question, Steve, was yeah. uh, how long have whales had that? And the answer is they've had that pretty much since the time they went underwater. Um, it was an early adaptation. Yeah, it's, it seems to be something really important to being a whale, uh, which makes sense because, you know, vision only works if you have light. And uh, you're not really smelling too much underwater because that's not the pathway by which whales evolved originally. They smell like we do, uh, if they do at all, using the air, nasal passageway. Uh, you're not really doing that underwater. So, Do we know if it's an, uh, a mutation that occurred, like that predated going into the water, or if it happened pretty quickly after? So we can read that story from the fossils. The fossils tell us about that story because ear bones are dense, and they preserve those parts. And it, and it looks like, so the quick answer is, it seems like they had it from the get-go, as soon as they went into the water. They almost pre-adapted for gotcha. it, yeah. which is interesting. And that kind of tells you a big uh, lesson about evolution, is that you never know what traits are going to be useful going forward. Yeah. And in hindsight, some things look like pre-adaptations. looks like they're ready to go. It just turns out that relative to... What you know, it's it's um, I think of that as a historical accident in a positive way. Um, but but we can read a lot about mutation rates in their genome, so we have enough genetic data to really resolve questions about gene sequences that may be functionally important about vision, about smelling, about reproduction. That's all in our DNA. Did you get DNA from that specimen? You can't, um, not for 33 million year old whales, yeah. as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, so somebody may prove me wrong, but yeah. as far as I know, I'm not worried about DNA. But we have enough living species. This fits into the group of all living species of whales. It's more closely related to filter feeding whales, 
but it's in between the common ancestor of killer whales and blue whales. So let me ask you a question. So, so it seems like from this specimen and other specimens that therefore toothed whales lost their teeth first, passed through a stage of suction feeding, and then some of them are one lineage later developed baleen. But is yeah. it possible that this is a complete side branch and that oh, sure. there's another pathway that got to baleen that didn't pass through the toothless, balleenless suction feeders. You put your finger on the hot topic about this, which yes. is, you know, we, we want to know how evolution works. And we have a model, and that's the model that Darwin gave us. But we realize it's a lot more complex. And how things evolve is, it's amazing that Darwin was so right for everything from bacteria to whales, right? Like that's... That's the power of a good theory, is its explanatory power. But we're discovering that evolution can be different in mode and rate uh, and, and effect, too. So bacteria, will, lineages will reticulate. We know that's true for plants, too, corn. Those lineages don't split, they come back. And so that really makes understanding evolutionary history complex. And so you have to have different models, as it turns out. Uh, your argument about this kind of linear transition well, that's assuming evolution operates in that way. And there's no good reason to think that's necessarily true. Um, we like to think it does. That makes it easier for us to study it because that's a, it's an operational model that makes sense to us. But baleen may have evolved several times. Yeah. I don't think so. But I, but that's why that's a good question that we yeah. can test. We're always testing ideas and that's. Right. That's, I think, the flexibility of the scientific approach is that, yeah, I'd be happy to pr be proved wrong. I want to know, too. So. Nick, do you have scientists, when they find out what you've discovered, do they call you, well, I want to come see it, can we can I, you know, yeah. pick your brain about what you're figuring out? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have seen this specimen before it was published, and, you know, everybody, that's, that's the, the uh, social part about doing science is you trust your colleagues not to spill the beans and you'd be mad at them if they did. And that's just a courtesy. But yeah, um, people, I mean, I think now this, people really need to see this if they want to address this, any question about the evolution of baleen whales, this becomes really important. And do you have people pushing back against, you know, you say this is what it looks like and based on that, our, you know, in the discussion section, this is what we think happened. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, people all saying this is not pre-baleen, for example. Absolutely, all of science is like science. When scientists report on something, that is an exercise in rhetoric. Yes, you're reporting facts, but your interpretations, you are going through your own series of of arguments and saying, I don't think it's this. I don't think it's that. I think it's this. That's rhetoric, yeah. and you're using that as a way to tell the narrative. In a scientific context, it's not that it's um, you're making something up, but you're trying to understand it. And we're, we're storytelling species, and so that's that's how we've been doing this for 180 years, ever since the first scientific societies report things. So, yeah. How many people don't like your story? Oh, I'm sure there's dozens out there. But <laughs> but that's good. I mean, that shows the vitality and health of a discipline that we. It goes back to this bigger point. We still don't know most of what happened to life on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I love astrobiology too, but as far as we know, N equals one, right? <laughs> yeah. So we don't even know the totality of N equals one yeah. here. Right. Um, yeah. Nick, does it help to speculate? Do you think sometimes, well, all right, what would be the selective pressure for losing your teeth? Uh, and then what, and what, what ideas might you have on, on that? Right. So I can answer that. That's If you don't floss. <laughs> well, that's, seriously, though, if you're not using them, yeah. it's just one more thing that can go wrong. Why get, they're, they're a liability. Uh, 
yeah, so if we, you know, I always think these kinds of questions about um, selective pressures are assisted when you think comparatively. You think about across everything you might know that may be affected by this. So it turns out whales aren't the only mammals, and they're not the only vertebrates to have gone back to the water. This is actually a story of, of terrestrial vertebrates that have reinvaded the oceans. That's happened probably over two dozen times in the last 250 million years. So we also saw mosasaurs. We saw these marine reptiles on our tour. Yeah. That's another example of a lineage yeah. that has terrestrial ancestors and went back to the water. Do we have the transitions from land to sea? Nope. But we know that they had terrestrial ancestors. So for the question about tooth loss, we actually see this happen a lot. Many lineages lose teeth partially or entirely. And so it seems like that's actually kind of highly selected for. If you're going to be a marine vertebrate of any kind with a terrestrial ancestry, losing your teeth takes out, maybe it simplifies the act of feeding. Maybe it makes, maybe that to me, and that's why suction feeding is not so surprising. Right. A lot of marine vertebrates do it. What's um, the name of the species? Maya Bellina. And now, were you thinking of the song when you made up that name? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, uh, already, we actually saw it. We saw Myocetus. We saw parts of Myocetus, the mother whale. Maya Bellina, also the mother whale. Choosing a scientific name is definitely a, a qualitative uh, creative <laughs> process. And we named it after, actually, the species epithet of the name, Maya Bellina nesbitae. Uh, Liz Nesbitt is a curator and paleontologist at the Burke Museum in Seattle, and she's worked a lot on the invertebrates, the shelled organisms that are also found in these rock units. And we thought that, you know, name a mother whale after a, a, a woman scientist would be a good... Right. Is the genus mean mother of baleens? Uh, so, yeah, so it all depends on what your interpretation of balina means. Okay. Uh, balina and cetus both mean whale. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, mother of whales? Baleen does come from balina, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, this gets into etymo etymology and linguistics mm -hmm. that I'm not an expert at. So when we were on the tour, just to wrap things up on, yeah. on your part, is um, you made a good point, which I've often uh, thought myself, that it's important for people to come to museums and to have these collections because when you see them in three-dimensional meat space, it has a much more profound effect. Yeah. I actually was on a tour of, of this museum uh, with two people I know who are creationists. Wow. And they were, they had a, a profound yeah. reaction. Like in the face of all this evidence, yeah. it was, a, it was impactful. Yeah. And right. And you, so yeah. you, you I, saw some cool stuff like Jay, you love this one. Yeah, there's oh, yeah. the uh, the freshwater shark. Freshwater shark, yeah. Yeah, that so, was that. So I wanted to describe yeah. it because the teeth are really you can't really see it. You can't see. Yeah, I think it came on, on the screen. So the teeth actually are a V. Each tooth bifurcated, yeah, are bifurcated. And I was looking at it from the left hand side. So from yes, right. So I was like kind of looking out of the mouth. By, because it was fa it was pretty horrifying, and then oh, and then you said, yeah, right? "Oh, that's a freshwater shark," yeah. and I'm like, "Freshwater? <laughs> like, that thing could be swimming up a river, you know? Like, yeah. you don't get in trouble. Any time traveling would be ill advised." Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I think that's you know, again, fossil record shows us stuff that we don't otherwise know about yeah. these past worlds and past these histories, these deep histories. That's some 300 million years old yeah. uh, from the Carboniferous. So, um, you know, we know it's a shark. Man, no shark alive today looks like that. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of, I mean, this is the bias we have of living in today's world. We live on 
a planet for which 3.5 billion years of life, give or take, is not around anymore. So we're missing, we don't even know most about these histories. Will we ever know? I mean, it's always amazing to me that fossils are even found in the first place. And, and that's, you know, we talk about this, yeah. this tangible aspect to them. You know, uh, we are still fundamentally visual and tactile learners. So I think that impact of seeing it visually, we pick up a lot of that information. Right. And, and that has a way of swaying our, that little dialogue going on inside our head. A much different experience from just looking it up on Google or online. It's just right, so, yeah. it, I mean, you can't compare being told it, it exists. Yeah. Even 3D. I mean, you guys can see the difference. I mean, I don't know if this comes up in the light here, but this is a 3D print. It's done on MakerBot, so it has layers to it. Uh, it's light. It's hollow for the most part. Um, it doesn't have the same fine grain tactile quality right. that the real thing does. So... We can still discriminate that. 3D is great, but it's we still have the real thing. But the real deal is different, yeah. right? Nick, thank you so sure, much no for problem. joining us. Yeah. So Nick's new book, Spying on Whales, is yeah. available. Yeah. Just got this copy, so I will look forward to yeah. reading it. And Carrie, you have a copy, too. Oh, uh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and it's all over the uh, gift shop at, like, every Smithsonian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, okay. Right. Cool. Well, thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Goes back to the National Museum. So. Thanks, guys. So cool, thank you. So there was a, another announcement, scientific announcement this week that we had to talk about. We were hoping to get to the Air and Space Museum today. We didn't have time, but maybe we'll make it tomorrow. Yeah. Just yesterday, NASA had a big announcement. I don't know if anyone here has heard it. <laughs> Within ten years. They are going to have a permanent human presence in lunar orbit. That's amazing. Yeah, this is yeah the NASA administrator. Yeah, yeah we were we were driving down. We were driving down trying to look for a, a timely news item, and and we came across this thing. Oh, this is going to be announced, and the time the time it was going to be announced was Australian. Standard time. We're like, when is that? We, I looked it up. I did the conversion. Oh, right, like an hour ago. <laughs> so, we, so we had the announcement. So, um, it, so the, the NASA administrator Jim Bird, um, Bridenstine uh, announced that we're going to have a permanent and within ten years permanent crewed presence um, in orbit. So the idea then is to have um, a space station like the ISS. The they call the gateway orbiting orbiting the moon and then there would be these landers and the landers would go from the space station down do whatever needs to be done come back back and forth both of them are reusable is the idea um so you can think of it as a command module in orbit a permanent command module orbiting the moon and uh so we're we're really excited about that because for for years i i've been saying we've been saying that forget mars for a little while in terms of having a human presence on mars we really need to get our you know, our practice on our moon. It's three days. It's three days away. Why would you want to be months away and practicing living off the earth like that? So the moon is, I think, is the best place to, to, to practice. And I think a lot of space agencies are kind of coming around to my way of thinking. It's such common sense. So they're really, they're really starting to take this seriously. And this, this is serious. I mean, th this is the plan. They actually think that they could, uh, start, I mean, they're actually building, apparently, they said that they're building the space station now, gateway right now. So it must be on the earth. But the plan is that within a year or so, possibly within a year, to actually start launching uh, making flights to the moon to do this. Uh, I, I really want some more details on that. You can build it like that. the International Space Station, right, a piece yeah. at a time, module at a time. They think yeah. that it could be done two launches a year, or 
20 launches altogether, this thing could be uh, in, in, its, in its final initial shape, if, if, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that they're doing differently, though, is that they're going to they're gonna have partnerships with nine companies. And these nine companies are going to have access to $2 billion that they will share in order to come up with these landers. And it's kind of like a competition, which is a really great idea. This is so, a really good partnership between NASA and private industry. It really is. And so this is what NASA is kind of doing. They're going to say, all right, this is the kind of lander we need. This is the kind of in instrumentality we need to bring down to the moon. C build a lander for us. So we'll, they're going to see who can build, what company can build the best landers that are reusable and inexpensive and efficient. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, this is what we need, guys. And they're going to see what companies come up with and, uh, and which ones do it the best way. So this is really, I mean, a real, it seems like a solid commitment. And it's just so exciting. Uh, to really have a permanent presence on the moon. This is something we've been waiting for decades, but, oh, we've right? We've been talking about it forever. We haven't, we haven't I, been on the moon since, what, 72? It's like ridiculous. You know what I'm curious to know is if they're going to be using any 3D, 3D printed parts for this new, or, you know, for this new... I would probably say that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Absolutely, they're proving yeah. that it's a viable... Doesn't the Dragon right capsule use 3D printed parts in the yes. construction? That's I'm pretty sure, yeah. yeah. Even calling it the gateway, right? It's This is the gateway to Mars, to the rest of right. this. That's the yeah. whole yeah. idea, is that, yeah, we have to... And this is Asimov, you know, all due credit to Bob. Uh, Asimov <laughs> wrote about this... I bow to Asimov. Yeah, anyway, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, he's like, he said the exact same point. You flesh out the Earth-Moon system, have a presence, permanent presence, presence on and around the Moon, and then it's a lot easier to get to the rest of the solar system. It's a lot easier to get out of the Moon's gravity well yeah. than it is out of the Earth's gravity well. Most of the energy going anywhere is just getting out of the Earth's gravity well. Yeah. And we're, you're pretty much already there. If you're in orbit around the Moon, that's a great place to, to base a trip to Mars, mm -hmm. for example. This is definitely the way to go. I'm glad that, that NASA announced this. And their timetable is very aggressive. That's the other thing. I was like, yeah. whoa, within, by 2030, we're going to have people in permanent orbit around the moon. That is awesome. I hope they keep to that timetable. Yeah, me too. And I mean, we were... We had a very similar aggressive timetable when we landed on the moon. Right. Yes, we yeah. did. And right, we did. Yeah, right. We pulled it off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, within this decade. It's all, it's all about the, the political will. Wait, it is fun because I just found out Whoa! I just found out. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, this is Bob. I have not stopped thinking about it since you told you me. You did what? Oh, I told you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob's like, you didn't read about the moon without me, did you? <laughs> so, the, uh, Bob goes, "Hey Jay, you know, if they make a domed enclosure, you can fly on the moon because you could you could power your own human flight. If they construct wings, you're light enough to yeah. fly. <laughs> to fly. Yes." yes. I, that would get me to gravity. the moon. I would totally go. Yeah. 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 That'd be pretty cool. Place, I can yeah. run. Then I start flapping my arms. And then I'm flying. Like in your dreams. And then I can glide around. Right. Yes. That, you know, that's more than 10 years from now. But yes, that could happen, Jay. That would be <laughs> It's theoretically possible. And then Steve was saying that if we're really old... Yeah, when you get old, you can move to the moon. Move to the moon. It's like Florida. Like Florida. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to do uh, one more news item that we just have to talk about this week. How many people have heard about this? Chinese Everyone. researcher yeah. reports first gene-edited babies. A totally non-controversial oh, news item. <laughs> so the, the quickie here is that this is um, Dr. He. He, uh, he is a Chinese geneticist, and... What he did was he used CRISPR, right? Mm -hmm. CRISPR is that new technology that you know can cheaply and quickly 
edit DNA. You could splice out a gene. You could swap genetic material. It's using um, a mechanism that bac some bacteria use for their own immunity against viruses. And, and we've taken this mechanism, and now we've used it to for cheap and easy genetic manipulation, which is great for research, right? We've been saying this for the last few years. Great for research, you know, but it's, the concern is that now this technology is out there and people can start using it's it. Cheap on and easy, yeah, right? Cheap and easy, yeah. you know, is the downside to that. Yeah. So this is exactly what he did. So uh, this is in the context of in vitro fertilization, right, IVF. So you had a Chinese couple. We only know their pseudonyms. The father is HIV positive. And uh, what Dr. He was saying is that in China especially, this is a huge stigma. Mm -hmm. And, um, in fact, they, they're, he claims that there are cases of forced sterilization of people who have RHIV positive in China. So he wanted to give this couple the ability to have their own child through IVF. So what he did was he used CRISPR to remove a gene called CCR5, which is important for HIV docking onto immune cells. Um, there, we know about this because there are people who have versions of that gene that make them relatively resistant to HIV. Not immune to it, but if you have a double copy of a certain variety of that gene, you're pretty resistant to HIV. What he did was apparently just remove it completely so that the HIV has no place to dock, essentially. And, in, there's, and so they, actually the, the IVF resulted in twin girls, because usually they do multiple um, you know, multiple transplants, yeah. yeah. And uh, he said, therefore, that, you know, Mark can father these girls without transmitting HIV through the sperm to them. Now, if there ever was an origin mm -hmm. for an origin story, superheroes yeah. or mutants, yeah. this is it. Yeah, right? exactly. The first time we tweak well, a human being with, you know, a new technology, remove this thing that we don't, you know, we sure right, that that's all right. it does. And then he accidentally tweaks something else and, like, they're going to start off telepathic. As they hit puberty, they're going to start levitating themselves. Yeah. And then they fly Although, on the moon. That's, that's not likely for multiple reasons. <laughs> but <laughs> one reason in particular, yeah, the researcher, Dr. He claims that they, they did a full genome sequence prior to using CRISPR, and then they did a full, another one after they... Um, on the, on the children when, once they were born. These girls were born. And he says there were, the only change was the targeted alteration. And, of course, the argument here is that this is a noble cause, and yeah. anyone would want this, well, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Were there but, any noble cause? There's a big yeah. but here. This is experimentation on human beings. Yeah. And he didn't get, as far as I know, he didn't get any kind of approval to do this. And he's using, you know, a technique that hasn't been approved for humans, right? CRISPR is a research tool. And he's doing a manipulation that hasn't been approved for humans. So there's sort of a double experiment here, the mechanism and the genetic change. He's kind of leapfrogging about 10 or 20 years of sort of ethical development yeah. here. Did so, he break any laws in China by doing this? I don't know the laws in, enough in China to know that, although I think that he did this under the radar. And now he's just saying, oh, by the way, I've already done this, you know. And I think he's going to be in trouble. He also said, he also yeah. claimed that he has another patient yeah. who's pregnant right. with another child who is being was genetically altered. And the altered. interesting thing is here, there are animal models for HIV. I mean, we got HIV yeah. from chimpanzees. There's SIV. There are other models yeah. of this. The animal research component needs to be done yeah, first. Absolutely. Not and only we just that, skip that step. There's a risk-benefit thing you have to do here because 
you know, we can wash the sperm that gets donated for IVF to reduce the chance of father, you know, transmission of sperm transmission to less than 2%. So if you also, oh, if wow. the father takes drugs to reduce their own viral count to minimal, there hasn't been a single reported case of transmission. So you're saying this was unnecessary? Yes. Yeah. That's the biggest complaint was not only was this experimental, it was unnecessary because we have established techniques, two of them, right. that could minimize it by all accounts to zero chance so, of transmission. So we so should have gone for the telepathy instead. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I know, like you're, you're, you're making my point is, yeah. you know, jokingly, but I get the sense that he, you know, of course, he really wanted to do this. Yes. And it might, I mean, watching the video is a little bit of a savior complex there. Oh, you know? yeah. He's, yeah. And he's pretty nonchalant about yeah. it. But, I mean, the, I guess the question here would be, how different would this be, speaking to the risk-benefit analysis, if he had corrected trisomy 21? I, I, I'm, that's, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't go for, like, correcting a straight-up fatal, horrible yep. genetic Tay-Sax disease that we have no treatment yeah, for. Yeah. Right. That would have been the first thing I would have gone for, rather than something that we already know how to prevent. So it's kind of redundant what he did. Um, and, and, the, and the other thing yeah. is, let's say the two girls do not contract HIV. We, doesn't, we didn't prove anything because they probably wouldn't have anyway. Right. Right. And, and say something something yeah. bad happens. Let's say they don't survive. The stigma would be transferred to the procedure itself. We could yeah. send it back. So, Bob, what happens is when, when they are around 16 to 18, they go back to his laboratory angry about what they did and with their telekinetic powers <laughs> they pin him against the wall now this is I'm, this is a TV show they pin him against the wall and then like knives and blades from like the drawer over there <laughs> why did you do this to us so it's called, it's called CRISPR baby yeah CRISPR baby is the genie out of the bottle now no no I don't the think entire so. international community has condemned this. Yes. All right, even in nations and places where ethics might not mean the same well, thing as the rest I mean, of the Western or other parts right. of the world. Well, so this it, is not a Western ideal that CRISPR should not be used for human experimentation. This is a global ideal. So, yes, the entire scientific community has condemned the actions. Yes, of this I mean, can we really say there is one... There is a standard, yes, by which they should, but do they all? I mean, haven't there been experiments in like Korea and things? There will always be clandestine things that happen when people have access to cheap technology. But this is not ethically condoned, as far as we know, by any world power. So you both may be correct in that, you know, you know, Kara's correct in that among Nations, institutions, the um, medical professionals, everyone is universally condemning, condemning this, not because what he did will necessarily result in harm or that it was, he, you know, it was not the right thing to do in terms of the goal. It was just that it was way premature. It's just, you, you're, you can't leapfrog the process that is there to protect people. Yeah, and you can't leapfrog the ethics committee. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It was, ethically, it was yeah. inappropriate. But what's scary, though, is he did it. You know, let's say the kids are healthy. You know, other people are going to be like, well, well I had HIV. I'm, I'm sure. injured. Well, the the Evans point is that yeah. how do we know someone isn't going to open up a CRISPR, you know, clinic in Tijuana? Exactly. That yeah. probably will mm-hmm. happen. Uh, there are already stem cell clinics yeah. in yeah. China, yeah. In, in parts of the world that are beyond good regulation, and and their shit doesn't work. Yeah, I was going right? to say the difference there is that they're not actually doing yeah, it. This actually might work. Mm-hmm. This actually might be like you can open up an unethical clinic where the treatment actually works. Mm-hmm. It's just unethical because it has we haven't gone through the research process yet. 
That's a much better selling point than here are some stem cells that don't actually. And by the time these people, these babies that are altered, by the time they start popping, you know, claws out of their freaking forearms, it's too late. (laughs) (laughs) Then what? Well, the other the other issue here is that because they did this on the when it was a single cell stage, right? So you know, there's basically two kinds of cells in the body: there's reproductive cells and somatic cells. Somatic cells germline. are just the cells that make up your body and reproductive cells like your sperm germline and ovum, the, yeah, the germ cell line where you, that will get transmitted down to your children. If you make the change at the single cell level, all your cells have the change. So that means these girls over, you know, their eggs will have the change and that will, that will now get into the genetic population, into the general population. Yeah. So he made a decision for the world, you know, yeah. not yeah. for just these two people. In essence, he made a gene drive. He made a gene drive in a yeah. sense. Yeah, very so slow one, but, mm-hmm. but still. I mean, do you but that's know, a big ethical conundrum right there. He made a decision for everybody who is going to He's be... He's a mad scientist. Yeah. If there's a mad scientist oh, yeah. in the world, for that guy Anybody is within that, that progeny, within that yeah. genetic I'm line... I'm you, my story, it's, it's, this is all well, legit. But the interesting thing about your jokes, which I know are jokes, are that that's a Another unintended consequence is the stigma around being a genetically engineered child. You remember when IVF first started? IVF babies have so much stigma around them. And I think that that's going to happen to these girls if their names are ever um, Right now it's just like Nana and Lulu. Exactly. But if people find out who they are, it just continues to happen. There's going to be a big psychological... I hope China uh, does something severe about this. Well, I hope not too severe. (laughs) Right, yeah, right. (laughs) They executed their head of the FDA for the last scandal they had. But um, I, I think that this guy means well, but what he did was completely wrong. And uh, for Maybe. all the reasons that we stated, that he should be disciplined. He should be not have the ability to do this again. Yeah. But I am worried that Evan is right and the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. We're going to see CRISPR clinics cropping up. Oh, boy. That would be bad. Because the dema- the, there's going to be demand by desperate yeah. people out there. By people, yeah. There's going to be pay. demand by people who are sick and yeah. want children and know that there's a risk to having right. children. All right, That's but the biggest. May put a little silver lining on this is this may accelerate the timetable of legitimate research. Yeah, so, I hope so. Well, in other words... And please, legitimate treatment. We're going to say, all right, damn, this genie is out of the bottle. We better make it legit so people don't go to Tijuana to get this done. Right. Yeah. Right? But still, it takes time. It takes time. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. Guys, this is one of our favorite ways to challenge our own perceptions and learn as much as we can. And this is with The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to stream thousands of lectures and learn about virtually any topic that interests you. And I've checked. I mean, they've, it is chock full with topics. Just go take a look at the list of topics that they have. You guys are going to love Sean Carroll's Higgs Boson and Beyond. This guy, he's like my go-to physics guy now. I've read some of his books. Each one was just a treasure trove of just dense information that will just blow up your brain. This one talks about the the Higgs boson, the the discovery in 2012, and what it means and the implications and what it took to get there. Just an amazing, fascinating course. You should definitely check it out. And we want you to discover Sean Carroll's course and other courses at The Great Courses Plus. And right now, SU listeners can start enjoying it for free. For a limited time only, get a special free month when you sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. So start that free month trial today only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. 
Okay, we're back in the studio. How did you enjoy our live show? I thought it was. Oh, I fun. loved it. So, oh, awesome. yeah. Remember, I said I had to give an update on the Chinese scientist story. Yeah, before. you did. I, I forgot to do that. So oh. now that you've heard the news item, the update is is that this guy is now missing. What? Oh, He's just so, nobody knows so, where he is. The, well, the, is he, nobody's is he self missing, or is he government is. missing? It sounds like he's government missing because the university yeah. said, yeah, we don't know where he is and we can't really say anything else. <gasps> oh, he's government missing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. That's bad, guys. If In case you don't know, that's bad. Yeah. He's, it ain't, he's it ain't black good. hole missing. So we, if there are any updates, we'll give them. But yeah, it's not looking good at this point. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, so I wish him well. Right. I mean, I disagreed with what he did, but, you know, we didn't right. want him. I think, as, I think as I said during the live show, I, I didn't, don't want anything bad to have him, happen to him no. as a result. That's not the way to deal with it. Okay. No. Right. Jay, it's who's that noisy time. Okay. Here we go. Here we go, sir. Michael Kine. This is Michael Kine. She was 16 years old. <laughs> Last week, Steve. Steve. Yeah. Yes. Hi. I played this noisy. I had to pay only So, I mean, it clearly sounds like a very old recording, so like something from Uh, 100 years ago. Was that German? I think it was English, but a German accent. I couldn't make out any of the actual words. Yeah, a bit rough on the recording there. Yeah, well, it's an old recording. Yeah, I know. They have their uh, audacity set correctly. I mean, what was going on (laughs) back then? All right. Eduardo Mata said, hello, Jay. Listen. That was weird. Edward Mata said, hello, Jay. Listener for (laughs) (laughs) What the hell was that? Eduardo? (laughs) That was weird, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay, so Eduardo Why is that so funny? I really don't know. Because I gave the guy, I gave the listener an attitude. Yeah, Hello, and then Jay. you're like, yeah. and then you're like, that was weird. Like you were yeah. possessed. Or something. Yeah, I just didn't. It's like to take the name John that. Smith and call him Johannes Smithies. <laughs> so, Where'd that come from? Eduardo said, "Listener for 1.5 years, love the show, love the book. First time guess, is it Edison's voice on one of his recording cylinders? The answer is no. <gasps> Not a bad you know, guess, cool. but the wrong accent." That's yeah. right. Not a bad guess, but he wouldn't speak with that accent. Uh, Jim R. wrote in and said, wild guess based on the possible German accent. That was very astute of you, Jim. And uh, what he was wearing comment. I heard the word theory in the recording. Maybe it was Albert Einsteinenberg wearing, of course, <laughs> no socks. And uh, Jim, you're incorrect, but you're warmer. You have taken a step in the right direction. However, the, the winner of last week's Noisy mm-hmm. was Rich Regalado. I recognize that name. Regalado. Regalado. And he said, to SGU, I believe this week's Who's That Noisy is none other than Sigmund Freud. Of course. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say he was wearing a three-piece suit, which I actually believe you are correct. What so, is it? Wait, what does what he was wearing have to do with anything? I just asked them just, to send me in what they think he was wearing. <laughs> Why? Because it adds a dimension to Who's That Noisy. Okay. okay? All right. So a listener named Evil Eye was actually the person that submitted this noisy. What's up, Evil? Thank you for being a listener for so long. Long time listener, been, long time. Oh, yeah. Like Friend from the, the beginning. 2005, jeez. He heard this on – he heard it on Radio Lab because this recording in part was on Radio Lab. 
So this was the only known recording of Dr. Sigmund Freud, and it was believed to be recorded in 1938, and he was speaking about his psychoanalytic work. Um, other people did guess correctly. Thank you all for sending in the guesses. I got some some other guesses that were pretty funny too. But So I have a new Noisy this week. I'm proud of you. And this week's Noisy was sent in by a listener named Matt Van. Check it out. Okay, so I will give one clue, and the clue is... It's a saw. (laughs) (laughs) The clue is that I guarantee you that many, many listeners have heard this noise. Mm -hmm. Because it's a saw. And it's not a saw. Oh, okay. Of any kind. Not a saw. Of (laughs) of any kind. Okay. It is not a saw. So if you think you know the answer to this week's noisy, and if you heard any cool noises this week, please... Send me in those noisies to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thank you, Jay. All right, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics and you listening at home or at work or in your car or under the polar ice caps, wherever you're listening to the show, to play mm-hmm. along. When we were down in Washington, D.C., we had a, an evening with the National Capital Area Skeptics. And we asked them what their favorite segment of the show was. And hands down, it was science or fiction. Yeah. Sure. I think that's pretty common. Sure. Yeah, I think so. And I th- so my, theory is, my theory is because it's an interactive part of the show. Absolutely. It's the most interactive. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And we and also talked play to- along at home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or you're in your car. No, it's it's I mean, you you've said it yourself that, that I think it's not just the interactive part of it. That's that's only half that's the story. That's what he meant by that's, interactive. That's, yeah. that you can play along. That's what interactive No, it's interactive. Means. Oh, I thought I thought you meant interactive like we engage with each other, we talk, we convince. Well, and the audience. Oh, it's, yeah, it's no, interactive on multiple levels. Oh, <laughs> that's so multiple funny. levels. Yeah. <laughs> I will also say, this is a long preamble, but this is the first week, I think, where I had to replace two of the news items because they were spoiled. Well, because, huh, spoiled. ran away? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Because, yeah. you know, like literally moments before the show, somebody emailed us one of the items. Oh, wait. And, wait. Oh, crap. doesn't help anymore. And then the other one was like blaring on all the headlines. I'm like, oh, I can't use that one. All right, so I, but I got three good. I got three good items. And I'll tell you. I'll tell you what the one, other ones were at the end. All right, here we go. Item number one: A new analysis finds that as global temperatures increase, the availability of wind energy is also increasing by as much as thirty percent so far. Item number two: New research finds a DNA signature common among all cancers tested so far, allowing for highly accurate detection through a simple blood test. And item number three. A new AI algorithm, that's artificial intelligence, Kara, renders the most popular CAPTCHA security measures essentially obsolete. Jay, what does CAPTCHA stand for? C-A-P-T-C-H-A. Let me look it up. (laughs) (laughs) C-A-P. I could look it up. We could all do that. (laughs) Isn't this your – Well, I know what it's used for. I don't know what it actually – I know isn't that – CAPTCHA is a way to check whether or not the person is a human or a bot. Completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. CAPTCHA. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Why, also, did they, why did they add public to that? Why wasn't it just a CAPTCHA? 
I don't know. It's weird. Public Turing test. Because it's used, it for, it's used for signing into websites. You know. It's like write this word or yeah. click all of the pictures that have crossroads in them. Yes, exactly. I hate those. Oh, yeah. It means if you're they're a necessary. bot, they're going to capture Some of the ranks are obscure. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't it be better if you were a bot, they would catch you? Yes, but, but I, you know, I said the name of what it is. Though. It's All right, Kara, why don't you go first? A new analysis finds that as global temperatures increase, the availability of wind energy is also increasing by as much as 30% so far. Don't understand how those things are related. So basically, as the temperature gets, as, as you know, global warming happens, as we warm, there's more wind. Basically. Okay. There's more wind. Okay. Sure. The wind Could has happen. more energy, right? The wind has more energy. It's, it's a more energetic type of wind. I don't know could happen meteorology is weird it's always been a bit confusing to me so um yeah i don't know why not new research finds a dna signature common among all cancers tested so far allowing for highly accurate detection through a simple blood test i don't buy it i don't buy it that one bothers me because you've got tumor suppressors you've got oncogenes you know cancer can happen one of two very distinct ways and then there's like so many different variations along there I can't imagine what a a cancer signature would be. I think that there are signatures common to specific types of cancer. We have good treatments for that already. Um, It would be really cool, though, if we had a blood test for those kinds of cancers, which I don't think we have. Um, You know, I have a friend whose mom is um, is stage four breast cancer, um, and it's in you know it's metastasized. It's in a lot of parts of her body, but her treatment. Yeah, it is terrible, but her her treatment has been incredible, and it's been kept at bay for years simply because. Every single cancer cell in her body has a specific marker in it. And so they're able to really target that cancer. But I don't think they could test for it. I don't think they were able to do a blood test for it. So um, would be cool. That one is really red flagging to me. A new AI algorithm renders the most popular CAPTCHA security measures essentially obsolete. Yeah, I buy it. I feel like every time there's a new way to keep something unhackable, it becomes hacked. And I don't know. That doesn't surprise me. So I, I'm going to go with the one that sticks out the most to me, the DNA one. That's the fiction. Okay, Jay. So this increase in, in wind energy by 30%, my understanding of, the, of you know, wind comes from you know, the, the exchange of hot air and cold air moving through the atmosphere. Now, I would imagine you know, with global warming, if the, the earth temperature rises, you know, how much of a, you know, if it rises by one degree or two degrees – how much of a difference will there actually be? I mean, 30% is a huge difference. It's huge. It is huge. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, something in there doesn't seem right, but let's just keep going to these next ones. Uh, the DNA signature common among all cancers. Um, yeah, I think this one is science. I think that, um, you know, they've been working on targeting cancer, identifying cancer cells. Um, and, you know, I do know that when, when, cancer metastasizes it gets you know it's being spread around inside your body and it could be spread around through your your blood so this seems cromulent the third one the ai algorithm that renders most popular capture security measures essentially obsolete you know i wouldn't doubt it because the you know ai essentially is if it needs to be able to recognize images you know yes i think ai could do that if the right ai was pointed at those particular ones that say you know pick all the parts of this image that have a car part in it you know, the other things that CAPTCHA does just says simply like click on this box. Um, and again, you know, the AI could evaluate the visual component of the page. 
and do pretty much what a human does, and that's you know read it and figure out you know where you have to check the box. So I, there's no reason to not believe that one. So I'm going to say that this first one is the fake about the uh, the global temperatures and the wind increasing by thirty percent. I don't think that's correct. Okay, Bob. All right, let's. Uh, I'm going to start with the, uh, the 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 DNA one. Um, yeah, I'm I'm buying it. I think there could definitely be some some sort of DNA markers uh, floating around that could, that can be detected. Um, so I agree with that one. The uh, the third one, uh, captcha. Yeah, captcha has gone definitely has gone through an evolution over the years. And when you say the most popular captcha security measure, what exactly are you talking about? There's there's a wide variety of captcha. That's why it says the most popular. Right. Captcha. I don't know what the most popular is. <laughs> okay. I only know what I see. So yeah, but the, well, the ones that are used the most there's, often. Yeah, that's right. But I, I've never taken a you know a, a survey of the most popular captcha, so I don't know. Oh, really? So my wow. my point is, it could be just the letters, or it could, for all I know, it could be the identify the storefront in the image one that could be the most popular. So I, so I don't know. But uh, but yeah, I that there could, absolutely there could be a new AI algorithm. I mean, it's, it's it seems no reason to think why that that couldn't happen. And for all we know, an AI could have created that algorithm, and we might not have any idea exactly what the algorithm is doing. So that you know, get used to that, folks. That's going to be happening more and more frequently if that's what, if that's what's happening. So yeah, that's just way too reasonable to doubt. I'm gonna for the first one, I'm gonna agree. But the wind, I'm just gonna have to agree flat out agree with Jay. Um, it, that just thirty percent seems way too much, unless you're talking about thirty percent increases that happen in very small areas over small periods of time. Then then I could see it. But but a general increase of up to thirty percent seems way too big. So I'll say that's fiction. Okay, Evan. Global temperature increasing and availability of wind energy simultaneously increasing. Yeah, I think it's a matter of degree here. I don't think it's 30%. Um, it's probably 3%. Or if at all, maybe it's uh, not, you know, just flat out n- no change whatsoever. I think that's where you just made where it up. Where you, fud- no. where you fudged on that one, yeah. But uh, the other ones real quick, DNA signature common among all cancers tested so far. Uh, I mean, or 33, really. So that one leaves itself open to... Uh, it's a lot of them, to, but I, I didn't want to say all of them because it did, they didn't test every single last one. Right, right. Okay, but it's it's more than a handful. And then the CAPTCHA, sure, I've never really had much... I've never really felt secu- more secure having to put in a CAPTCHA thing than than have not having put one in. It really doesn't doesn't do it for me. So that's it. I'm left with the wind energy one, like the guys. I feel pretty good about CAPTCHA. I, you know, I definitely don't think it's useless. All right. So we'll start there. A new AI algorithm renders the most popular CAPTCHA security measures essentially obsolete. You guys all think this one is science. And this one is science. Awesome. Tell yes. me about it. The what CAPTCHA it? gotcha. What's the, up, what's the update? What's the up, the so about? actually, CAPTCHA is very effective. The reason why it's so effective is that even if you use a a computer algorithm to figure it out, it has to be trained on like millions of examples. It's extremely labor intensive. And by the time you get it, they'll just move on to something slightly different. And that that obviates it, right? That renders it useless. So uh, it's been very hard to crack CAPTCHA. It works really well until perhaps now. Dr. Zhen Wang, senior lecturer at Lancaster University School of Computing and Communications and is the co-author of the research. Uh, he say he is taking a new approach that uh, uses an AI algorithm that is able to crack CAPTCHA with just a few hundred examples rather than a few million examples. Ooh. And so that makes it a lot faster and therefore you know, feasible to do it you know, quick enough to keep up with 
with with a, even a changing you know captcha mechanism. Uh, they tested it against thirty three different captcha schemes, uh, of which eleven are used by the most popular websites, including eBay, Wikipedia, and Microsoft, and uh, it worked really well. And this is sort of version one point too. Like if, when they start to iterate this, it may progress more quickly than CAPTCHA does. This may be the end of CAPTCHA. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, terribly sad. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. I mean, now we have to we have we still have to do it, but it's not really protecting us. Why don't they just not develop that then? You know, like it sucks. Yeah. Right. Well, I think they're trying to show an, a a uh, a potential weakness. You know. Because they're they're white hatting it, right? They're publishing it. They're saying, "Hey, you could do this, you know." So be, you got to come up with something else before somebody before somebody else comes up with it, right? That doesn't mean that the bad guys can now get this algorithm and start using it. I mean, I'm sure it's probably not not easy to, to get their, your hands on this and implement it. it. Might you know, it might be a little difficult at least init- at least initially. But yeah, it's it's very good to give a heads up to the capture people so that they can try to find ways to circumnavigate to circumvent this new this new method of uh, this new AI advance. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Uh, I guess we'll go back to number one. A oh, new boy. analysis finds that as global temperatures increase, the availability of wind energy is also increasing by as much as thirty percent so far. Kara, you think this one is science? The boys think this one is the fiction, and this the one boys. is. The fiction. The fiction. Oh, sorry, <laughs> yes. But I don't. The th- curse of going first. I don't think any of the guys hit upon why this is the fiction. So you didn't just make it up out of whole I cloth. I did not make it up out of whole cloth. Okay, good. It's the fiction because the study shows that wind energy has decreased, decreased. by 30%. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I almost went there. Well, yeah, because I mean, well. The I disparity, yeah, the disparity between hot, if it's more hot, then there's less. Maybe there's less difference between the hot and cold and therefore less wind. Is that? It's confusing. Know. That's the real answer. It's confusing. I didn't get deep enough into the paper. For, they didn't go into that. The paper's not about why. It's just just measuring wind speeds and wind power at tur- wind turbine height. And they said that at uh, approximately 30, 50, and 80% of the stations that they tested had lost over 30% of the wind power since 1979. Wow in North America, Europe, and Asia. So pretty much all over the place. So it's not just a local but phenomenon. But how could they directly link that to global warming? Uh, yeah, that's that's a question. But That's like all they they're saying is that in the last four years. They haven't. Years, right? It's the fiction. So anything I could say doesn't matter at that point. Oh, uh-huh. you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay. So basically just wind. This is all – yeah, yeah, they're just saying wind power is decreasing. So we, huh. we definitely – the more wind turbines you have, that reduces – the power available to any downwind wind turbines, right? So yeah. I don't know if that's the mm. case, if this is just right. we're building too many wind turbines and we're sucking up all the, the good wind streams. I don't know. Oh, because they're, they're measuring the wind power at the yeah. source, at the wind turbines. Right. Interesting. Right. But it sounds like it may be an, a, a climate phenomenon as well. Who knows? Hmm. Yeah. If climate, if, cli- if climate change predicts less wind, then, it doesn't. then that's... It huh? But it doesn't. doesn't. That's the thing. It, like this is the hardest shit in the world to predict. Yeah. So that's why – the most complicated models in the world. It's too bad because it would have been cool if it did predict it. Sounds um, like it's practically chaos. I think it is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so man. the part of the conclusion of this article <laughs> is that we need to rethink our, our models of how climate change affects wind because this is mm-hmm. showing something the models did not predict. So that's good too. New direction to go in. But it means that as we plan our future sources of energy, we can count on less and less from wind, you know, per yeah. turbine that we throw up there. 
which is solar baby. Yep, solar. I think yeah, solar nuclear are the ways and fusion. to go. Yeah, Ooh, well, fusion. More, wind is fine. Wind will play its role, but I don't know how big a role it's ultimately going to be able to play. If I were a betting man, I'd be betting on solar and nuclear as the two that are going to save us this century. Um, okay, fusions for next century. Let's go on number two. New research finds a DNA signature common among all cancers tested so far, allowing for highly accurate detection through a simple blood test is science, Kara. It's amazing. This is cool. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. This is good. It's, you know, it's always preliminary. This is the first study, but uh, they seem to have done a good job of looking at at doing a lot of research before they published, right? So this was published in- What could this DNA signature possibly be? Yeah, that's a good question. It's epigenetic. It's it's a pattern. Yeah. It's a pattern of methylation, right? So uh, it normally, yeah. normally methyl groups, which are involved in regulating gene expression, methyl groups are spread, kind of scattered among the genome. But all cancers that they've tested so far, they seem to cluster around genes that are relevant to the cancer. Right. I used to date a girl named Methyl Groups. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> so this is almost <laughs> like a peri or kind of post-cancer phenomenon. It's not something well, that's within the cancer. It happens because cancer arises. No, it could be within the cancer itself. It could be hmm, the, the genetic okay. changes that make it a cancer also change the what they call the methylscape. Wow. You know, the, the methylscape. The, yeah. I love that. The, the, the pattern methyl- of methylation. The methylome. Yeah. The methylome. <laughs> so they've tested it in prostate, colorectal, lymphoma and breast. Those are very different kinds of cancer. Very different, yeah. yeah. And they're some of the most common kinds of cancer, right, too. Right, right, right. And the other thing that happens is when these cancer cells die, they spread the, this DNA into the blood, the DNA fragments mm-hmm. that have this methyl signature on them, and they can use um, nano gold particles Ooh, to, to stick to them. And you know, you can make Pull a color out. change and a blood test that you could see with the naked eye. Like you could do like a naked eye blood test. Oh, like a reagent test. That's really cool. And boom, there's cancer in this person's body just like that. They said 90% accurate, which I hate when they say it that way because I don't know yeah. if it's sensitivity or specificity or whatever, but it's pretty accurate, you know. That's why I didn't put a so, specific number on it. But There are blood tests currently, right? They're just not very good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and this is not new. The idea of, of, of testing for circulating DNA fragments is not new to detect gotcha. cancer. But this might be right. a universal cancer signature and that this one in particular reacts nicely to these gold particles. And so because um, of it's the three-dimensional nanostructure of these fragments with these clusters of methyl groups. So if this pans out, this could be huge. This could be just part of your well, screening I mean, blood tests. Let's know? explore that. Bottom line, I mean, what what the huge the huge advantage here is what that is super early detection. Is that sure? It? Is that, is that yeah, the and main? cheap as hell. Yeah, yeah. That like the thing is, people die from cancer. I mean, I can't say this exclusively. A lot of people die from cancer because they don't find it until it's too late, until it's already metastasized, until it's it's too late to excise a tumor or to do radiation or to have – even attempt those things and have them be successful. Like most people die from cancer because it's too late. Cancers can have a long lead time. You know, like if you have a breast cancer, for example, you, there might be a clump of cells simmering in there for a couple of years before it becomes Whoa. macroscopic, mm-hmm. before it becomes something mm-hmm. detectable. And then, of course, it could be progressing very quickly. It's like that – you know, geometric kind of increase. And so... But then the question is, how early could they... Because yeah, how, how early would you still be able to this DNA it? has to break off and get into your blood in a, in a concentration that's high enough to detect it. Right. So all these are unknown, right? Because this is the 
Yeah. This is a new thing. And so, you know, I'm sure in 10 years, we'll probably know a lot more about its, you know, its sensitivity, how long, how advanced cancers need to be before the test becomes positive, uh, its impact on specific cancers and screening, all that. Everything has to be tested now to figure out exactly how useful this will be. But this is very promising, right? This gets the promising label. It hasn't For proven sure. specific efficacy yet, but damn, this could be really, really good. Right. And because of because it's so promising, it's probably going to get some a lot of research money. I think I think oh, sure. yeah. I would probably think within already... five years we would we, we could have you know a, know a lot more about this. This could happen faster. A lot of that. cancer I mean, research is going to want to do follow up on this. Absolutely. Do it. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah if, if, uh, yeah, if your specialty is lung cancer, you go, I wonder if it's detectable in lung cancer. You know, so there'll be other researchers jumping on this and seeing how it pans out. So, And this isn't a drug. This isn't a treatment. The clinical trials that something like this, yeah. it's not the same protocol. It could happen That's a true. lot faster. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Ethical considerations are much lower. Yeah, just a blood test is a blood test. That's not hard to do. Right. right. Annual blood test, ca- check for cancer. Yeah. Wow. But you, well, the thing is you'll have to you'll have to – Check it against a gold standard and probably mm-hmm. follow up patients for years to see. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's where the time will come in. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But right. it's not, it's, it's one of it. those things, yeah, where yeah. like probably you don't need a high bar um, if it's cheap enough and if it's um, scalable to start implementing it early. You yeah. Know but the, I mean? the trick yeah, exactly. is the trick with cancer screening is what are you going to do with a positive test? That's the trick. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah, the positives and stuff. Uh, boy. Yeah, so. And the last thing you want to do if you have a positive test and you can't spot it on a scan and you can't spot it anywhere is to just open somebody up. Right. Like that's is it going to lead to biopsies. unnecessary procedures? Exactly. So, Didn't we have that problem yeah, with prostate Prostate, yeah. We were over-screening yeah. for prostate, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not – it's not just screening is not always a home run. You have to always ask the mm-hmm. question – how is it going to affect subsequent management and treatment, you know? Uh, yeah, and like you said, they said it's 90% effective, but you're right. The way that they worded that doesn't – like it tells you nothing about false positives. Yeah, right. We need more detailed information. Mm-hmm. But very encouraging, very encouraging. It's a, it's a cool yeah. cool breakthrough if it pans out. be nice. Did you want to hear the news item that I discovered tonight that didn't make it into science or fiction? Sure. I'll tell you the two that, I, that were rejected. Go ahead. All right. Men – if they were exposed to high levels of chemicals in nonstick frying pans and fast food packaging while they were in the room, on average, have a penis that is a half inch smaller. <laughs> that is a new study tonight. Wow. <clears throat> Might have gotten that me with that That explains everything. <laughs> That's one of those data mining studies that I don't buy at all. <laughs> yeah. That is such a prime example of pee hacking. Like the whole thing we talk about all the time about confidence intervals. That's what we're really talking about is that if you look at enough data, you're going to find things that happen by chance. Yeah, this is this is data mining. That's yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's 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 a different application of very similar concept. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's like important. Okay, I want to give one too real quick because I came across this today and I thought it was fascinating. So you know how there's a new <laughs> series I think or a new movie coming out uh, uh Mary Queen of Scots. So I yeah. read today yes. Yes. That the reason that Elizabeth won, everybody knows those classic pictures of her with the white, white face makeup yeah. and the crazy oh, yeah. red yeah, wig. Yeah, what's that? The reason she caked all that white face makeup on she is because sick. she had had smallpox. Yeah. And she had all these really heavy, horrible pock marks on her face from it, and she wanted to hide them. So she wore makeup made out of white lead and vinegar, and it slowly poisoned her. Yeah. Whoa. That lead will kill you. Isn't that crazy? 
Yeah. Oof. Whoa. It's a rough time back then. Sorry, that fascinates used me. Used to be in lead. so much. Oh, lead used to be in lead. everything. Oh, yeah. gosh. What if I anyway. told you this one? What if I told you that in 2018, global carbon emissions decreased for the third year in a row? Wow. Global, huh? That's amazing. That's, Wait, is that true? No, that's fiction. Um, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound 2018, right. <laughs> we broke a new record in terms of the largest <sighs> amount of carbon emissions. Yeah. So, right. yeah, parsing it a little bit, the carbon release from burning coal did decrease. Coal is decreasing. Renewables is increasing. However, demand more than increased enough to compensate for that. Uh, so that's we're talking more people and more people in developing countries having access to yes, and we had a cold winter need. and a warm summer, and that makes a big difference gotcha, too. Gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha, yep. gotcha. Yep. for heating and cooling. So more carbon. See if we're than going ever. solar soon. And the other one, Bob, did you hear this one? The study that was published showing, speculating that dark matter and dark energy might both be. The same thing. This yep, dark fluid, yeah, dark what? fluid Fascinating that it has anti gravity or negative gravity. It's not anti gravity; they call it negative gravity. Right. What is happening? But some, that's the one that somebody oh emailed gosh. to us like an hour ago. I'll probably be talking about that next week. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. We probably. could be starting to develop a little new segment here. Yeah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Too much work. Emailed to us an hour ago. <laughs> Interesting stuff that we just can't get to. All right, now, Evan, can you give us a quote? People will work every bit as hard to fool themselves as they will to fool others, which makes it very difficult to tell just where the line between foolishness and fraud is located. Yes, yes, yes. Very true. The ever-wise Robert Park spoke those words and is so true. Yeah, absolutely. We get asked, is this guy... Is this, you know, charlatan, is he a con artist or is he a true believer? And the answer is usually yes. Combination uh, <laughs> of the two in some ratio. That. Yeah, there, there's oh, people boy. are usually some combination of the two. There are some pure con artists out there. Absolutely. But oh, I, definitely. You know, I don't know that I've ever met a true believer who didn't commit pious fraud, right? Who didn't cut corners because they're so convinced that whatever they're promoting is true. So there's always, in my experience, some fraud in there. Yeah, but it's probably more rare that somebody hasn't started, you know, buying what they're selling yeah. after a while. Yeah, but they buy sure. There's probably got to be some amount of, of that in even the most horrible charlatans. But I think there are just some psychopathic con artists who know they're 100% full of shit. Yeah, yep. it could be. But oh, yeah. I bet you even There's they no could rationalize be it. Now, if you're palming somehow. chicken parts and pretending to pull them out of somebody, you know that that's fake. Yeah, right. There's no yeah, room yeah, for self How you get around that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I'm sure somewhere in the back of your head, you think you're doing it for the greater good. Yeah. Don't know how. Maybe. Uh, Don't know how. It's my version of a placebo. That's good, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, people can convince themselves I give people some comfort. weird stuff. Yeah. You're going to die anyway. I might as well extract all their money before they go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know a dead person can spend money. Yeah. Their family? What? Never mind. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. You actually joined me twice this week for the wow. Smithsonian. Right. Well, I joined and you then, three times today because I came to your house today, Steve. Yeah, that's true. But now you wow. didn't record anything then. As far as you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again, guys. Bye, Steve. Bye, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 